Today, we are looking at one of the biggest, most impactful, most inspirational pop culture events. It happened in the late 1990s. It's called The Matrix. Yes, the adventures of Neo and Trinity. This incredible vision by the Wachowskis. It struck pop culture like thunder and lightning. And immediately it was felt, not just in action films, but in comic books, and specifically the X-Men comics. Boy, oh boy, did they completely wander over to the Matrix side of the table and start looking and examining it, aspects that they could put into the comics, into a new revolution of the X-Men. They call it the revolution. Part of it was Counter-X. How was Counter-X put together? How was it conceived? What was the execution? What was the reception? Why does Counter-X have zero footprint in the X-Men universe? We're gonna look at all of this. We're gonna, we're gonna look at all of this and all of the ways that the Matrix impacted the X-Men office at the turn of the millennium, at the dawn as the 90s became the 2000s on an all-new Robservations. Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of Robservations. I am your host, Rob Liefeld, hence the Rob in Robservations. Uh, th this is the, a place where I give you my reflections, my experience, my my uh, my stories from 37 years in the comic book and entertainment business, as well as a lifetime of consuming comic books, like like consuming them like calories. I've consumed them since since I was a wee seven year old uh, in 1974, obsessed with comics. The Fantastic Four, Marvel Comics, DC Comics, never looked back. Often we track here how how crazy the transformation from the the four color newsprint comic book page to the $250 million budgeted, you know, special effects driven blockbusters that have, uh, that have really come to define the last 10 years as comic books have just, and comic book superheroes have taken over that they're on your shelves at Target, at Walmart, they're in the CVS, they're in the drugstore, the, the grocery store, you know, comic books were the, the domain of the, 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 uh, mini market when I was growing up liquor store, the 7-Eleven, the stop and go. Maybe you had another name for whatever your mini market was, but yes, stop and go was a version of 7-Eleven. There was U-Totem, which was another version out here in Southern California of a 7-Eleven. But comic books were, were, were the domain of those mini markets primarily. You could go to a drugstore, you could go to a grocery store and find them. But now comic books are everywhere. They're in the, they're in the you know, greeting card section of Target, of Walmart, of, of, of so many of the big box stores. They're the DVDs that are, that are at the point of purchase, you know, at the same, exa the exact same retail outlets I just mentioned, the Target, the Walmart, the Best Buy. The, the comic books, comic book superheroes have just, uh, have just al aligned. I mean, they're, they're the majority of the Halloween costumes that you saw recently out on Trick or Treat Night. You know, you, you saw Scarlet Witch, you saw Vision, you saw Deadpool, you saw Spider-Man, you saw Batman, you saw Superman, you saw Wonder Woman, you saw Harley Quinn. You know, the, 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 the comic book superhero takeover has been ridiculous. Today, we are going to talk about a specific point in time. I'm going to take you back to a very, uh, what I think is a great year for, for so much of pop culture. And one breakout hit that we all are very familiar with, but maybe you didn't know how behind the scenes and then the influence that this pop culture uh, hit created on the world of comic books 
in maybe the not most positive way, maybe the wrong things were, were taken by the creatives who decided to, uh, to descend upon this pop culture item like vultures and pick its bones because everybody wanted to get a piece of it. And yes, I am speaking of 1999 and the Matrix. The Matrix. What, what were the lessons that, that we might have gotten wrong from the Matrix? So I'm going to wind you all the way back into, we're going to back up into uh, the Matrix coming out in April of 1999. And the, the, the interesting part of the Matrix was my uh, involvement with it, which which I was not directly involved with it, but I became aware of it in the fall of 1997 when Will Smith of Men in Black, of Independence Day, of Bad Boys, you know, uh, this is when he was becoming the Will Smith that would dominate, you know, stage and screen for like a decade, just a decade of, of an incredible run by Will Smith. He had, he, had, he had transitioned from his television, you know, sitcom, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, and had become just the most affable, uh, desired, popular movie star in the business. Well, I was asked to meet with him. I have gone over this in depth in a Hollywood episode uh, of, of observations from season one. And I tell you the entire story of how we uh, came together and, and took a property that I had uh, sold. It was optioned by Tom Cruise in 1993, 1992, really, end of 92, early 93, called The Mark. Well, Tom and I had been together on that all the way through 97, a good almost six-year run there. And and uh, then the rights came back to me. I wrote a spec, a spec screen split. Uh, a, <laughs> I did a spec screenplay, okay, uh, which is, means I just I wrote a movie without a buyer. I wrote it because I had it in my heart, and I had already seen how it had kind of been um, – Miss, in my, in my opinion, the guy who created the concept, I'm the creator of the mark. I thought it was uh, mishandled by some of the different writers and the different executive tweaks that had happened. That that probably more than anything was the executive tweaks at the studio that had at the time Paramount. Well, the option came up. It came back to me. They asked me to, to continue on the mark and make it into a cartoon or a Nickelodeon show, given that Nickelodeon was a branch of Paramount at the time, still is, I believe, but but they wanted to, you know, keep it keep it in the company. And I said, no, 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 I'll just take it back. And when I took it back, I decided to commit to Paige, and I created this, you know, opportunity for myself. And Will Smith came calling. The same agency that represented Tom Cruise represented uh, Will Smith. I had a meeting with Will Smith. He loved it. He signed off on it. He wanted to do it. He said... He had just turned down the role of Neo in The Matrix. I hadn't heard of this. So I heard all of this from him. And he said, you know, it's pretty wild. It's pretty complex. But he just didn't see how it was going to come together. Will has since publicly talked about this, not the mark, but publicly talked about how he turned down The Matrix and it was one of the regrets of his career. And so let me fast forward to the premiere of The Matrix, the absolute premiere of The Matrix. And that night... In April of 1999, you know, uh, in in Westwood, at, at the big, you know, the big Westwood premiere, and I was sitting in Will's Will's aisle. I was sitting in in Will's, you know, like 15 rows back center. It was great. 
uh, a comic book artist who had gone on to do some of the most spectacular work of his career and I think is a huge uh, proponent for why The Matrix was so great and perfect. And we're going to talk about what an amazing, just a, a perfect film, a perfect experience The Matrix is. Is an, is, is an artist named Steve Scroach. Now, I worked with Steve. It could be Steve Scroachy. Apologies both ways. Uh, S-K-R-O-C-E. Got to know Steve. He, he uh, did some covers uh, for, 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 for me and, and, and some work briefly at a, at a company that I had called Awesome Entertainment. When that was dialed down, he briefly went back to Marvel, but very quickly was recruited to do the Con- conceptual storyboards, uh, you know, visual imagery, imaging for The Matrix. In The Art of The Matrix, the hardcover book, you can see so many of his brilliant, outstanding, mind-blowing uh, uh, storyboards, his his art direction. He and another gentleman from comic books, Jeff Darrow, had kind of teamed up to be the one-two punch that provided the huge visual, you know, Alphabet language, you know, the, the 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 dictionary for 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 all of what we were wow blown away with because the the Matrix is such a visual dynamo, and so Steve Scroach, Steve Scroachy, I'm I'm so sorry if I'm not saying this right. I apologize. It's 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 I I I remember it was one of the other. Here we are. He had joked afterwards. He's like, I worked on the movie. And you had better seats than me. And I'm like, well, I was with Will Smith. Will Smith's like the freaking biggest movie star in the world. He invited me to the premiere with him. We sat and we watched it. I could tell Will was not prepared for what he saw on screen to see how amazing the Matrix had come together. Some of the stuff that he didn't understand, plugging into the Matrix. They're going to put plugs in the back of your heads. Well, you can see in 1997, a, a movie star who was trying to stay on the rise, how he's going to go, ah, that's a little skeptical. Not sure I'm going to go that route. I think I'm going to stay in this lane over here. And it maybe maybe it wasn't, it was maybe it was it wasn't safe enough, and maybe it was too risky. But he said, "I just didn't see the visuals that they were saying when they said I was going to jump up and freeze." He said, "When they, you know, what we know now is bullet time, was was not something that that a whole lot of people were visualizing." Will was by far not the only person to turn down a role in the Matrix, the role of Neo, and and many other actresses for all different lead parts throughout the movie. It was a it was a movie that the Wachowskis had difficulty uh you know getting people to sign off on their vision so imagine how satisfying it was to put that vision together to share it with the world and have it change cinema change science fiction yes you know did they have uh gibson's cyberpunk influence did they have comic book influences everywhere is there star wars is there superman is there the bible yes it's a brilliant mashup that is why it it is so amazing as you all know you don't need me to tell you that the matrix is a perfect movie you know it the Matrix, the original Matrix, no more, no, no further, uh, you know, no, no, no further extensions of the Matrix. Just that one movie is a perfect, perfect from from open to end. It is a perfect film. It escalates. Each act has has, has the conflict ramps up, and by the time we get into that third act, the consequences are so huge, and 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 we, we've bought into it, and and. The, the characters we, we have signed off on 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 Neo on Trinity on their love story on their their desire to survive to beat back this evil. The Matrix hit pop culture 
like a Mack truck. I mean, it just smashed in and smashed through the wall, broke broke what was possible, uh, you know, to the next level. What did, you know, cinema take immediately? If you were there, what did what did cinema immediately take from the Matrix? They took the most obvious part. They took the bullet time. They took the bullet time cameras. This state of the art system that the Wachowskis had perfected that gave us this stop motion, you know, uh, special effect that unlike anything that we had experienced prior on that on that level. You started seeing it in commercials, and most importantly, you started seeing it in a ton of, uh, you know, uh, kind of Hong Kong cinema, modern Hong Kong cinema. They'd take a rap star, they'd take a martial artist guy, they'd throw some bullet time in, and they would market it to you as the next hot action martial arts film. I, I, I'm Everyone from Jet Li... Uh, you know, to, to DMX, these guys are suddenly in these very, uh, what you would call constrained budgets, nowhere near the giant sci-fi budget that was required for something like the Matrix, but more ground level. But if, you know, a guy is entering a building and he's about to battle with, with six Yakuza or six, you know, gangsters, suddenly they, they gave you a flash of the bullet time. It was the bullet time. And that was the immediate thing that they, you know, they being other studios and other directors other producers took because they're like wow we could people are going to be looking for this next that's what everybody who walks out of something that is so influential who has you know access to the levers of pop culture who can who can continue you know to 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 give you what you just saw because maybe they've got a movie going in development next week that they just walked out of you know the matrix and they go tell me how i can access bullet time tell me how i can do this you know matrix obviously is so much more than bullet time so much more than bullet time but that effect was the first biggest echo on the culture and it carried through again a lot of uh you know mid-range cinema because you couldn't really match what the wachowskis did but you can you can uh see where the bullet time was kind of a we are kind of sort of like the matrix and so even Mission Impossible 2, the pivot, the hard pivot that Tom Cruise took to making just this out-and-out martial arts, you know, action thriller, especially that third act. Uh, there's no bullet time, but now we're really into what I call gung-fu, or gun-fu, gun which is a term, you know, fighting uh, uh, martial arts with guns in your hands. And again, you're, you're, you're grabbing from John Woo at this point, you know, uh, who, who, who with Chow Yun-Fat made made these epic movies and, and and now part part because of his you know own hollywood success with face off and then matrix who takes john woo and amps it up speeds it up adds bullet time increases kind of all of the john woo you know effects and again i i had a movie that i developed with john woo for three years and he shared with me yes he saw all the aspects of his uh you know cinematic kind of contributions on screen in the Matrix as well. The Wachowskis did not hide their influences. They 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 wore them boldly, and it was their unique, you know, stew. They cooked up a stew, unlike anyone else, with with all manner of obvious ingredients. But they made something that was so incredibly compelling, and we just went and we we, we sat and we watched in awe. This dynamo called the matrix the matrix i will go on record as saying opening in april of 1999 had an adverse effect not that the phantom menace would have um been seen in a different regard because the phantom menace had its own pacing problems my biggest problems with the phantom menace and i love it i love the creativity that george lucas brought i love the new characters obviously darth maul uh, i love i love all the new additions 
in building out the mythology. But Matrix coming out a month earlier, you know, breaking down all manner of new uh, technology and with its perfect pacing and perfect third act structure consequences that, that continue to rise. The stakes are higher and higher. We are totally into these performances. We are on board. It it, it adversely affected ex- how we saw The Phantom Menace. Would we have seen The Phantom Menace differently? I do think slightly, not a whole lot, but slightly. The Matrix certainly didn't do it any favors because it raised the bar. It raised the bar and Phantom Menace had no idea, you know, that, that this thing was coming. So the Matrix became the new bellwether, became the new, uh, you know, high bar in, in entertainment. And people started looking it over to see what else they could take from the Matrix and kind of apply to whatever they were doing next or what, what was what was maybe in development at the time. And they could, you know, they, they could fast track that into their own projects, movies, television, and here we are, comic books. Well, during this time, on Father's Day, so shortly after The Matrix and, and a, you know, a few weeks after Phantom Menace, just to give you a, a window of time in 1999, my dear father, Paul Liefeld, my dad, was going back in for another uh, round, another surgery for his uh, brain tumors that had been regrowing and endangering his life since I was nine years old. I have talked on this show before how he was in a coma when I was nine, he went in, a blood clot uh, occurred, uh, early technology, 1977, 1978 technology, uh, the, the, the later surgeries in 1984, 85, uh, 88, that w- would, would be much more advanced. We, we got world-renowned brain surgeons uh, in Chicago rather than the guys at the local Orange County uh, you know, hospital. It was because the recovery times, the, 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 just the entire surgery procedure was so much more, I want to say, uh, uh, the expertise was higher, the execution level, the machines, the technology, maybe the hands using it were at the next level. My, 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 my dad was worked on in 1985. The, the, the tumors were very, they, they had been pressing up against his vocal cords. They robbed him of one of his vocal cords. They separated them so they couldn't come back together. The, the tumors from his brain were, were creating stems and, 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 you know, had grown. And cause that's how my dad knew his voice was strained. He was talking like a frog. And just like the first one took his eyesight where he was seeing three, you know, triplicate, and he went in and they said, oh, there's something behind that eye. This is a problem. And that tumor had been growing and was so big and was, they said, the size of a softball in the terms of mass that they took out of my dad's head. Um, they, they, again, they put it in a, in a cup and they, and they literally wanted to show the volume that they removed. It took his eye that I had then become rendered dead. And so my dad had his eye sewn shut, wore dark glasses uh, for the rest of his life from 1978 post. But he got a he got in a coma because of a blood clot in that 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 late seventies surgery, and he was out of our house for nine months. He was supposed to die. They told him, you know, your Paul will pass. Paul is going to die. You should unplug him. Doctors, I was always sitting out in the waiting room. They didn't want to see my dad. He was discolored. He was black. He was blue. Uh, just uh, not not a pleasant sight. They didn't want to expose a young boy. So I did not visually lay my eyes on my dad for almost a year. Because once he woke up, he had to learn to walk, to talk. He had to rehab. 
Uh, he had a large section of his um, head removed. They had removed that they had carved out skull. He went back in after being home for about a month to put a plastic, uh, a piece of plastic in his head to build it out so that he would his head would not be concave and sunk in. This guy went through a ton. Paul Lef, Paul, Paul Liefeld, uh, my dad was a warrior. He was an absolute, just uh, one of the toughest men I have ever encountered. A, a steely, steely reserve, and uh, you know, so 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 in 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 the subsequent years, the tumors kept regrowing, and each time we thought, well, maybe this is going away. Well, cut to for his fifth, sixth, I lost count at that point. In 1999, it had the scans had come back, and his tumors had regrown. It was a it was a problem. This these had grown big and fast. We went up to Westwood, where he was going into uh, UCLA for this surgery, and we had a dinner on Father's Day, and I still look at those pictures. They were, you know, all of us posed with my mom and my dad, and I just I didn't get the sense that I really wasn't ever going to have another dinner with my dad, but the summer of 1999, and I'm, I'm not trying to take you to a sad place. It's just going to take, take you to where I spent the summer and late, uh, early fall of 1999 was he went in for his surgery at UCLA. He came back out, uh, but he did not have the rapid healing the, that he had had from 85, from 88, from 94, because uh, we, we thought we were going to lose him before my wife and I got married. It, it was just a few months before our wedding and this happened again and we rallied we we went back up to UCLA and we we were hoping that my dad would you know be okay and continue to live and he, and, he, and 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 again so he got another 5 years after 1994 surgeries 1999 he checks in he has the surgery uh things don't go as well he never left the hospital and my dad passed in the fall of that year why am I telling you this? Why am I? Why did? Why did the grim button? Why did the sad song start getting sung on observations? Okay, because I drew comic books by his side that entire summer, and the comic books that I were drawing were the Cable comics that came out, uh, Cable seventy one, seventy three, and seventy five. Uh, Marvel was was really good to me during this time. My editor in chief had asked me to come on Cable, come back to the character that I had created that was the breakout uh, in the early 90s of, of, of the Mutant Office and was the face of X-Force and had gotten his own series and spun off. And they were headed towards the 75th anniversary and he wanted to kickstart sales on Cable. So he said, Rob, come back. Uh, let, 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 let's, let's, uh, let's light it up. Let's, let's get readers. Let's get new eyeballs. And they were very generous with me. But case in point, I normally always do covers to my own books. But all of this started unraveling by the time the cover to uh, Cable 71 was due. And I just said, I, I don't even have it in me to try. I don't even have it. And Bob's like, wow, it's not like you. You normally do the covers to your own books. And so he assigned uh, Adam Kubert, who did a fantastic cover to Cable number 71 with Cable versus Ahab. They had hired a new writer uh, because when I was coming on board, they were transitioning the older team off. Joe Casey and Jose Ladron, later just to be known as Ladron, in my opinion, in my humble opinion, produced the greatest run on cable ever, ever. Uh, Ladron was the perfect mix with his Jack Kirby-esque 
stylings. He clearly was very influenced by the King, maybe even more so like the, the 1970s version of Jack Kirby, which is my own personal favorite version of Jack Kirby. But he saw it through um, his own particular lens. And uh, Joe Casey was a great uh you know, partner with him writing these incredible stories where Cable battled S.H.I.E.L.D. and Cable battled all these new different menaces and just the action was was out of this world. The art was fantastic and I cannot recommend more highly they reprinted the entire run right before Deadpool 2 came out to capitalize on the new, you know, the new uh, light that was that was shining on Cable during that time. They they, they put them out in, in, in two trade paperbacks. That's, I mean, their, their run is that uh, comprehensive that it needed two trade paperbacks to contain two volumes to contain the excellent work they did but fans weren't going along for the ride which is sometimes the case sometimes something genius can be right there in front of you and no one is 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 seeing it is experiencing it but it it had been given a two-year plus ride and the connections weren't there so marvel was looking for a change of pace again i, I just cannot recommend this joe casey ladron run to you more enthusiastically, you should seek it out. It's, br it's brilliant. I, I think it is like a, a definitive take on the character. But again, you know, it hadn't been connected with the fans. They wanted a different connection. I said, hey, Joe, Joe would you stay around? They've asked me to come on board. He's like, no, I'm going to leave with Ladron. So I had to respect that. I, I respected Joe Casey. I respected that decision. They brought on a, a gentleman named Joe Pruitt. The, the thing with Joe and, and sometimes the editors, they don't click. And uh, Bob Harris was not clicking with Joe. So each and every plot that I was given during that time, I was asked to rework. Obviously, I wrote and drew my own work to great success on New Mutants, on X-Force, on Youngblood, on Prophet, uh, on Brigade, uh, on, on, on Captain America for Heroes Reborn. So they said, hey, Bob would give me directions as to how to rework them, and I would. And, I, and then Joe would script over what what I gave them, but he, but but Bob just trusted, especially with deadlines being as tight as they were, he'd be like, Rob, this isn't exactly where I need it to be, but we don't have any more time to go through it on the plot level. Could you do this and this and this? Well, so I missed the, the issue 72 and issue 74. I'm out because of the timing and the delays in my turning in the work due to the fact that I am drawing these at the side of my dad, at the side of my father in his room at UCLA. We would split up, and pretty much every other day, at the at the very worst, every third day, uh, it was myself and my sister, and and my sister would go with my mom. They would go together, but my myself, um, my sister, and my my wife, Joy Leifeld, just a champion, said, I, I can go sit and, and and visit with Paul, you know, on these different days, and uh, then 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 there are oftentimes we'd go together, so. I would be in rotation up at the hospital three to four days a week, and I would sit there. I would bring my art bag in, and sometimes my dad was unconscious. Sometimes he was awake and kind of out of it, and they'd come in, and they'd work with him, or they'd wheel him off, and they'd keep taking scans because the thing with my dad was he wasn't getting better that summer, and they couldn't really put their finger on it, and, and as great as all the doctors were, and they were great, there just seemed to be a lack of progress on my dad's recovery. Well, June turned to July, turned to August, turned to September, and it is mid-September when my dad passed away. Uh, complications, uh, you know, uh, just again, all stemming from his lack of recovery, and uh, it accelerated one evening, and it suddenly put him on the fast track, and Paul left. And my dad was just awesome, and, and we loved him, and it was a sad summer 
uh, we kind of saw the writing on the wall. I, I, I thought there was a, a late a late game rally. I thought he was coming around. But what does any of that have to do with the Matrix? Well, you were all having, you know, whatever summers you were having in 1999 and living at the Cineplex or traveling the world or going to the beaches. Again, my summer was driving uh, 70, 90 minutes, depending on traffic, up and back to UCLA and sitting with my dad the majority of each week and pulling out that 11 by 17 page. And there are pages in uh, cable 71 and 73 and 75 that I can tell you, oh yeah, I drew this here, I drew this here. I mean, I mean, each and every one of these pages I have a very vivid memory of. And I am amazed that I had the focus. I think that book kind of helped save me that summer. It gave me that focus. It gave me that, uh, you know, link. It, it, it gave me something to do. And I was proud that I would come in and sit next to my dad and start top left and finish bottom right. The page was done and I could go home and I could sleep and I could relax. And then again, maybe at the next day I would be home and the next day I'd be back up going to see my dad. So 71, uh, 73 and 75, 75 is a double page issue. And again, that, that was the one that basically the plot at the last minute, because it was tying into another uh, chosen story, Bob scrapped and just said, Rob, we, we literally, it's one of those times where over the phone with sentence, like a couple sentences, could you do this? Could you do this? Could you do this? He just said, go, go with it and take it in this direction. That's why issue 75 is splashy, got big double page splashes, got a lot of, we, we even, you know, the, the starting point changed from what was in the written plot. And so this was uh, an experience, again, that, that I felt Marvel was really patient and kind. And uh, we say so much, we, sometimes we, we take the piss out of the publishers and our publishing partners. And here I just want to tell you that they did me right. Uh, they, they allowed me to work on some key issues um, got the fill-in work that was necessary while I could not do 71, 72, 73, 74, 75, but especially the bulk of 73, that all of 73 and all of all of 75 were drawn while I'm in this, you know, sad state, sad, a sad state. Again, uh, we live in Orange County. UCLA is good 70, 90 minutes given good traffic. And then going home again, forget about it, especially you know, you just kind of wanted wanted to wait it out. So was I going to the cafeteria? Was I going outside of the park benches uh, and, and the lawn areas? Yes. So so if you ever experience those issues of cable and you can can know that they were done while I was sitting with my dad in the hospital, that is kind of sweet to me. I, I'm glad that you know that. that, that, that that's not something that I uh, am not. Uh, I, I don't mind that you know this. It's, it's a sweet memory. And that is uh, a great, you know, uh, just very, very appreciative. I, I am very appreciative of the fact that Marvel let me do this because they knew my enthusiasm for this and for Cable and that character. And I look back on those issues the other day and 75, I mean, each of the issues I'm really extremely proud of. And along the way, I got uh, some of my buddies to help me out, inking Dan Frega, uh, uh, Ian Churchill inked some pages along with the, the, the inker who was doing uh, the figures for me, a gentleman named Larry Stucker, who came out through Extreme. I inked again as I did so many of the uh, the, the 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 work at that time. I inked the faces on pretty much um, all of the pages that you have close-ups or medium-range shots of Cable or Wolverine or Apocalypse. But why am I telling you this? It's because I had established a good relationship with Marvel, and what happened is they came to me and they said, "Rob, we are thinking of making a giant change on the X books." 
And because by the time cable was coming out, late September, October, uh, they, they were already planning the year ahead. And they came to me and Bob Harris and his assistant at the time, there was a large contingency of editorial, you know, assistants, uh, uh, not, not, not on the same level as Bob. Bob was actually the EIC of, of Marvel during this time. He was the editor in chief. Mark Powers was the editor. And then Jason Liebig was one of his assistants. So, so Bob would call me and talk to me because we had the longstanding relationship going back to him giving me the new mutants assignment and allowing me, you know, the, the, the opening to create Deadpool, to create Cable and Domino and X-Force. Well, the, 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 uh, that relationship, which, which was then revisited every time I would come back at Mar to Marvel during, during the nineties, Heroes Reborn, Captain America, the Avengers, he would always kind of call me up say, Hey, let's, let's go in this direction. Then at this point, Mark Powers had come into his own he had gone up through the system. He was, you know, the day-to-day -day editorial. And there was a gentleman named Jason Liebig. I was talking to both. Uh, yes, Liefeld was talking to Liebig. L-I-E-B-I-G. Just like L-I-E-F-E-L-D. Liebig, Liefeld, Mark Powers. They said, hey, we want you to, we want to consider giving you a group of titles and transforming those titles. And, he gave, and they said, we want you to take over Gen X. We want you to take over um, uh, uh, X-Man and X-Force. Would you be interested in that? I said, of course. Of course I would. And I was very excited, the idea to take over a family and to take a large-scale X-Men event. Now, they were building towards the, the very next spring where they were going to bring, you know, Chris Claremont back just in time for X-Men 100, which would be the 100 issues since the launch of the Jim Lee, Chris Claremont X-Men that sold 7.5, 8 whatever that number is, 8 million uh, X-Men. And, and so, so they were going to do this kind of industry-wide Launch now. The, the the again, Steve Scrochi, Steve Scrooge. Sorry, uh, you're like Liefeld. Why didn't you figure this out before you came on? Look, I can't you know cross every T and dot every I. I just I'm, I'm doing the best I can, people. Thank you for listening. <laughs> so so he was contacted. Steve was contacted to do Wolverine coming on the other side of Matrix and actually kind of put his all co comprehensive vision. And he did kind of a spiritual sequel to the Frank Miller. Wolverine Limited series went back to Japan, revisited Mariko and the Yakuza and all that stuff. But he had to leave because Matrix was so popular. He had to exit uh, and, and go start prepping Matrix 2, which is, again, where I'm going to come back into this in a little while. But they didn't have a phrase. They didn't have a, a, a moniker for what would become Counter X. And it would happen without me, obviously, because I wasn't part of that. But we started building out a storyline. I created a menace, a mutant menace from long ago, from, from, from the Dark Ages that was re-emerging re, uh, and would unite and threaten equally all three different books, X-Men, X-Force, and Gen X. And it, was, it was really interesting because the Gen X kids were like the new mutants before I took them over. And this time, I was not going to bring some transformative, paramilitary-styled, time-traveling future warrior into the book to try and change it. I want, I wanted to really meet them where they were in their teenage, you know, angst, their mutant teenage angst. And so I really took a, took the, the, the mantle of doing this very seriously and crafted this story that would, the opening arc would be six, six and six. So you have, you know, uh, at least 18 issues covered. And, and I felt like a good sample size of what I was capable of doing. And maybe we would be able to establish a connection with the fans. Well, Hard screech on the tires, pump those brakes. As I was assembling my team, which was which included Ian Churchill at the time, 
and and as I was, you know, building out the, the different elements that I was going to bring on board, and uh, I was doing design work, I was doing conceptual work, what would X-Force look like, what would Gen X look like, what would X-Man, you know, to, to properly uh, portray Nate Gray, which was an extension, a younger version of, you know, Cable himself, the... Uh, that, that all kind of went up in flames when one afternoon, after months of putting this together and planning and, and getting approvals, and, and one of the sticking points, and I'm going to go back to the LeDron cable, and I'm going to tell you one of the things that I, I think held that book back because I'm bringing this all together. Everything I put on the board, I'm going to tie together here. The LeDron cable issues that I am praising to you that I think you should grab and buy and they are worth investigating and letting them blow you away. Uh, had amazing covers. LeDron, of course, drew the covers, but they were colored by different colorists uh, who were over here, you know, in the United States at the time. And no, this isn't some sort of racist tear I'm going to go on because the the, the coloring uh, unit that was uh, problematic for everyone at the time was a group called the Irishmen. The Irishmen and everybody in comics who was working for Marvel was was would knew of the Irishman. What happened while Marvel was in bankruptcy? So so Marvel, the Marvel's owner was in bankruptcy, which took Marvel in bankruptcy because they were part of Panini and Toy Biz and all of the other labels that were in the bankruptcy that Ron Perlman, who also owned Revlon, Revlon had had entered into in order to reorganize his assets, of which Marvel was part of. Well, the publishing division never missed a beat. Again, I've addressed it here so many times. Do not ever say that Marvel Comics went bankrupt because the comics weren't selling well. That is an absolute lie. That's not true. The guy who owned Marvel had bought too many companies. He was leveraged, and he was bleeding out, and he needed to reorganize, so he entered into bankruptcy, reorganization. Marvel kept publishing comics and had bestsellers the entire time. I love when people clear their throats. I see these keyboard warriors go, well, you know, Marvel Marvel declared bankruptcy because their sales were so low. No, that is absolutely, that is untrue. It is one of the most foolish things that you can say or type, so don't do it. Stop doing it. Ron Perlman took his entertainment company, of which is assets, Marvel, Toy Biz, Panini, all of them filed for bankruptcy, but not because sales were low that Marvel had consumed a distribution company named Heroes World. They had their giant toy company. They had Panini. They had a sticker company. Look it up. So the comics were published the entire time, but they were on a tighter budget. They were on a much tighter budget. And for literally somewhere, I heard $12 a page to $30 a page. And when you're paying at that time, when you're paying colors in the hundreds of dollars of pages, but over the Irishman, the Irishman will color a book at thirteen, dollars $18 a page, yes, you're going to go that route. A certain percentage of Marvel's titles had to go to them to get that rate. They were dealing in bulk. The Irishmen, their favorite color was tan and brown, and so many of the books they colored, did the color separations on, were tan and brown. But Marvel, knowing that they can't have everything look tan and brown, had to pivot and use a certain, you know, they could use... I think maybe 8%, 10%, someone at Marvel can tell me the number, but it was minuscule compared to the entire line, could get coloring that wasn't the Irishman. And they made sure that their covers didn't really fall under that domain. Now imagine if the Irishman had 30 books a month, that's 30, 22 page comics. So Marvel is paying at a very cheap rate. They have lowered their cost. They are 
you know, showing that they are fiscally responsible, even though the end product is compromised. The end product, you know, looks brown and tan. These these were more. When I first opened Extreme Studios, I had a bunch of guys who could color on computer, but that didn't mean they understood talent. They could render a globe and make it look, you know, they 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 knew where the the the, the dark chiaroscuro shadows were, the core shadows. They knew how to go from light to dark. Um, maybe they even utilized some rendering tricks. But the color palettes of the Irishman were not as palatable. Yes, you're like, Liefeld, you are bullshitting me. I am not. This is a true story. People at Marvel will back me up all across the way. We nicknamed them the Irishman, and people actively did not want the Irishman to color their books. But some sometimes, if you were going to work on a comic, you just had to give yourself over to it. So certain books were able to escape the Irishman. Cable was not one of them. That is why the Ladron books are so damn tan and brown, and I really do believe had uh, any of the top flight colorists of the time, the Brian Haberlins uh, of the period, had colored, uh, you know, Ladron's cable run, it would be viewed differently. I, I really, color matters. Uh, Mark, Mark Silvestri had a Batman book come out, come out recently. Uh, having seen the line art, I was terrified of who was going to color it. He went through many colorists before um, settling on Arif, who is who is uh, brilliant. And they match up perfectly, and the work is brilliant. It is, it is stunning. It is gorgeous. It is lush. The color and the line art come together in such a complimentary manner. It fits the tone and the mood that Mark was going for, the rendering is 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 subtle, but right on the money. It's not over-rendered. We all have seen kind of when, when color can overpower or take something in a different direction. Well, the cable books, again, were the bright, shiny example of how coloring can go wrong. And I and, and I had made it a sticking point because on my issues of cable that I had done 70, uh, 2, 70, I'm sorry, 71, 72, and 75, I had my own colorists. I had brought my own colors with me because, come on, I, I, I helped transform computer color. I'm going to demand that that be the case. Well, one of my stipulations in doing Counter X was my books do not go to the Irishman. I do not get the $12, $15 a page color treatment. I am going to use my own color people uh, because I had obviously developed such a great relationship. I had created my own coloring department. I wanted my own coloring people to... Uh, to, to, to do the separations, the, the palette, the guides, and Marvel. So that, that, that may end up being a problem. And they kind of let me linger, let me hang as they figured that out because they had, it had to be brought to the powers that be. And again, at this time, you know, I'm back at Marvel having uh, fallen out with them over their, you know, again, tightening of the belt on Heroes reborn when they're like, we can't afford to continue this deal that we had agreed with you. And by this time, it's two management teams differently. Two, the management team that hired Jim Lee and myself to do Heroes Reborn had been replaced by a new management team would have been replaced. So again, you know, for me, it's about the character. It's about the character. It's about the character. It's about the character. And I, I was always coming back and doing this, but the, the, you know, I was sticking to my guns. I didn't want to do a bunch of books that got you know, turned into tan and brown because that was the palette of choice. And there are people, and I know who you are, who are laughing at this because everyone remembers the plight of the Irishman. You're laughing at the fact that, oh my gosh, the brown and the tan, everything was brown and tan. Um, it was just their hues, their tones. They didn't understand maybe the more, um, you know, interesting color palettes. But bottom line, 
One day, I got the call, Mr. Jason Liebig, who said, Rob, we're not going to go in this direction with you. I said, I've already written the stories. I've already got this stuff going. I've, we've, we've worked this out. He's like, I know, but you know what? Two things. One, we, I don't know if you've written, this is him telling me, I don't, I don't know if you've read the authority or, or, you know, Stormwatch or, or Planetary, but Warren Ellis is doing some great work over there. I'm like, yeah, more, more, more of these books. He's like, he's coming on to be a showrunner and, and we're going to get some juice off the buzz that he's creating in comic stores. And we're going to go in that direction. I'm like, wait, so I'm like, you've already gone to somebody else. Yes. And, and Warren Ellis has said, yes, he's going to be the showrunner. He's got his um, uh, kind of uh, protégés that he's going to work with, a gentleman named Ian, Edden, Ian Eddington. There's Brian Wood, uh, who would later you know, break out on, and do a bunch of indie stuff himself. But uh, they said, we, it, it's kind of a done deal. So we're not going in this direction anymore. And you would think that I would be stung and that I would be um, angry and hurt. But I just was like relieved because I knew also... Uh, we were getting; they were getting a lot of pushback. Liefeld doesn't get to dictate who colors his books. We're coming out of bankruptcy. These budgets are these budgets. We need to produce this stuff at a certain number. We have a certain number of books that we have to put through, and we've already earmarked these other books to get the, you know, uh, treatment by preferential colorists here in the states. Uh, again, uh, uh, so much of the reason that sounds weird is so much of today's coloring, so much of my colors, the guys who color my books right now are from Indonesia. They are from Mexico. They are from Spain. They are from the Philippines. A couple of them are local, live in LA, Southern California, um, who came from those like schools or those training overseas in Indonesia and the Philippines. But so, so saying, oh, American colors. Look, it's just at the time, the guys who were really um, making the strides was Brian Haberlin, who had transformed the color palette at Top Cow right around the time of Witchblade in the Darkness. And he was a, uh, and remains an incredible force in the world of painting, coloring, illustration. But he just had an approach to coloring that everyone tilted towards. He's one of those guys that tilted everything. The guys at Liquid, who were from Extreme, were um, doing some of the upper tier X-Men books as well as some books over at Image and they were setting the world on fire with their particular palette and again we had uh, different people from Extreme Studios Wildstorm had their coloring department Top Cow each of these um, kind of stars in those systems had broken off like the Liquid guys to be contributors to comic books whether they were from Image or Dark Horse or DC or Marvel and at the time they mostly all, all of them lived in the States. Matt Broom, who would go on to uh, color me, he had a he had a unit called Digital Broom. He grew out of Wildstorm. He he created his own coloring department. I would use him on the on the tail end of this story. So didn't get the color treatment I wanted because I wasn't about to go down this route and and uh, subjugate the, my artists and my creative teams, my own creatives to the Irishman, wouldn't budge. Warren Ellis is seen as the bigger sexier name at the time. And so they said, Rob, we're going to put your stuff over here and we're not going to go in that direction and uh, keep those designs, keep those storylines, keep those character arcs. And I mean, I, I was let down for about a day, you know, but then you move on, you move on, move on to the next thing. The cable work and the reception of the cable work was what put me in contention to do this. But Warren was buzzy and Marvel was looking for buzzy. And Warren, when I say buzzy, Stormwatch, Authority, Planetary were really getting some hot word of mouth. The work he was doing, the work he was crafting, his announcements. Well, but Counter X 
was to to the eye. We're all we're all the way back at Matrix now. We we made our journey because as these are being prepared, they're early in 2000. This is now early 2000. You know, uh, 99 is in the rearview mirror and the Matrix and its giant shadow, its huge echo, its footprint is being felt. And uh, I always felt once I heard that Warren wasn't writing each of the books that he was show running like, like a, a television showrunner who would maybe do the pilot and then hand off the individual episodes. But, you know, throughout, uh, whether it was Brian Woods or whether it was Ian Edit Ennington and the different um, creative teams that they, that they put together, it didn't seem as if there was a cohesive uh, vision for these books. Now, my buddy Wills Protasio was tapped to draw X-Force which was cool, which was reason enough to just give it a glance, give it a look-see, give it, you know, check it out. But once the designs came out and, and, and they, and they showed how these characters were going to look, it was like all the wrong lessons of the matrix were being applied. And, and this doesn't end here. We're going to go to Chris Claremont and his X-Men 200. I mean, his, his arrival for X-Men 100 and, uh, and, and also it's tethers to the matrix. And again, maybe we weren't taking the best lessons from the matrix movie. So, the counter X books. I mean, look at the X Force books alone. Look at the advanced art. Everyone's in black dusters, black leather dusters that look like Neo, that look like Trinity, that look like that posse of rebels from the Matrix. And they all have black Ray Bans on. They have their they have their sunglasses, and it's um it's it's not the right stew. And 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 some of them have bare chests with with you know their 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 Matrix gear. Suddenly, X-Force had become Neo and Trinity uh, in mass, all in their Ray-Bans and their leather dusters. And this was the transformative vision for Warren, El- Warren Ellis's Counter-X, which was, again, as I'm saying, part of pop culture feeding off the remnants of what Matrix left behind, you know, before Matrix could return. Because at the, at the earliest, it was going to take three years to turn around and give you a new Matrix. Even with all systems go, all the money they spent. So there's a window of time. What do we take from the Matrix and make our own? Well, Warren Ellis and 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 the creatives at, at, in this in this vision of what was called Counter X. Counter X was the initiative. Uh, decided that they would make everyone look like Neo and Trinity, and that was the big kind of uh, transformative element that would kick off what what would. Would, would, would kick off Counter X, which truly, truly more than anything I've experienced in the last 20, 30 years, had a failure to launch, an absolute failure to launch. And, and when I say failure to launch or Counter X had a, had a failure to launch, what, what I'm really saying is, look, there's, there's really no footprint of this. It happened. It was, it was engaged. Uh, you know, I, I got to be honest, I would be surprised if Warren... Uh, provided Warren Ellis provided more than than a, a basic outline for the the uh, you know the vision of this thing, which which again covered Generation X and covered X Force and and covered X Men, and the visual representation was to literally make them all leather leather up like like the Matrix, whether it was Warpath Domino. Uh, the key component that, that that Warren brought in was he had a character that he created named Pete Wisdom in Excalibur, another X-Men book. It was m- more focused on the British arm of, of mutants from Captain Britain and, 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 and so many of those other characters. 
Excalibur was a cool book when it launched, Alan Davis, Chris Claremont, but uh, Warren then did a run. And in an issue that was illustrated by a gentleman named Ken Lashley, super talented guy, they introduced a uh, mutant named Pete Wisdom. Now, Pete Wisdom would migrate to X-Force under Warren's vision for this as they became more of a covert ops team. It, it, it almost was a little like the X-Files, you know, which is also people in suits and uh, and, and street clothes. And and this is, uh, look, as, as I've said to you so many times, comic books is, this is an art form. We buy comics for art. There is no, uh, at, un, under any circumstances, there there is no getting out from under that it is a visual art form. We buy comics primarily for the visuals. I have yet to ever meet someone who writes comics just for stories that have annoying pictures next to them. We, 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 we buy comics for art and artists, and this is a business that has made artists into household names, many of whom we have celebrated uh, regularly here on Observations. Pictures matter. And when the promotional art, like I said, for Counter X and the, and the representation of these characters, it was, wait, they're all dressed like Neo and Trinity from The Matrix. And again, as I look through the art, and I have these comics and I'm looking through them and people are in suits. They're in, uh, you know, everyday uh, street clothes or they're in their almost, I, I got to be honest, it was almost a little bondage. Warpath's costume is a little bondage leather. Uh, it looks like it's inspired by bondage leather. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that we <laughs> that we would qualify this as an image of the time. Uh, but, but you know, it's got buckles and straps and diagonal leather, you know, belts. And uh, it's just, Counter-X has no imprint. It was kind of like the event that didn't happen. Yes, what was I, um, did, did I get outlasted, outplayed, outsmarted, uh, by by Liebig and 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 Ellis and whatever yeah that's fine again that 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 really had about a echo of about maybe two days a weekend where I was like oh I'm not doing that anymore and I moved on and I and I and I pivoted but was I bringing uh, all sorts of crazy talented people with me like Dan Fraga and Ian Churchill and Karan Grant and all these guys that I, w- I was working with at Awesome I was it it would have been decidedly different this was these were not in any way shape or form reflective of the same concept. My concept for those three books was completely different. Warren brought Pete Wisdom over, made him into the the de facto kind of Nick Fury-esque uh, figure. Uh, you know, cool name, Pete Wisdom. Cool name always. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you, cool name. But uh, but but Pete Wisdom is a, uh, you, you, you would read, I, I can just, I can just give, it, give it to you from, from Marvel.com. Pete Wisdom is a former agent of the British Intelligence Agency. Uh, he is just kind of low all around in terms of power. Um, he, he was charged with the observation and interaction with extra normal activity. He was a liaison with the British superhero group Excalibur and later worked alongside as a leader and mentor of X-Force. He uh, was now, when he got to X-Force, he had an eye patch, which again, more of the Nick Fury, uh, uh, you know, echoes. And, uh, and, and, the X-Force that he led was more of a paranormal, like X-Files team and, and a covert missions ops, a little, little X-Men Mission Impossible. I, I remember there was some Cold War science that they uncovered and some monsters, but they, they definitely, this was not the dominion of big guns kicking down the door, swords, blasters, uh, claws, the stuff that really had defined X-Force for so long. 
This was a different direction. So counter X visually borrowed from the matrix. Let me discuss to you why that is getting the wrong stuff from the matrix. Why the matrix took everyone by storm and the Wachowski's vision is so incredible is they masked Superman in plain clothes. What you are watching is through the um, development of a prophecy and technology and the awakening of these powers within the matrix, Neo becomes Superman down to him flying out of a phone booth at the conclusion of the matrix where he flies by us in the blur. That is the end of the movie. And, uh, but he makes the call from the phone booth, all of these obvious analogs echoes, you know, familiarity with Superman, but they got there with, you know, you know, you gotta, you gotta plug into the matrix and access your powers and, you know, be greater than who you ever possibly considered you were. And so by the end of the Matrix, we are looking at Neo, who is semi-Superman, semi-Jedi Knight. He can stop the bullets. He can wave his hands. He can do amazing things. He's already, you know, uh, 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 stopped a helicopter, tossed it into the side of a building. He can, you know, shoot thousands of, of rounds of ammo without reloading. And, uh, you know, on that incredible, you know, bullet belt, uh, uh, you know, that, that, was, that was going through that Gatlin gun. I mean... Matrix is a brilliant movie that 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 kind of is subversive in the way that it delivers you into a comic book superhero realm. Everyone has their cool leather because it's it's not the domain of bright pop colors. That's comic books. Four color comics. We excel at, at making red and blue and primary colors on costumes pop. Uh, why does everyone? Why is everyone hoping? It is the most requested thing that I have read in regards to Deadpool 3 since it was announced about six weeks ago. Will Hugh Jackman finally be in the costume? Will he wear the mask? Will he have a proper costume rather than being in a wife beater, a jeans, or his own version of a leather jumpsuit that was also influenced by The Matrix? Because immediately, you know, by the time they're doing the third act of X-Men, Matrix has already been a giant hit. And so it's, hey, black leather, black leather, again, more black leather. Everybody institute the black leather because black leather dusters, black leather, super tight um, leather tank tops like Trinity was rocking and leather pants and leather boots, uh, leather gloves, Ray-Bans. This was now cool. Of course, it's cool on film because it it, it has been risky and Marvel has certainly accelerated us getting used to primary colored spandex superheroes, some with padding, some with, you know, different textures like the Man of Steel suit. I'm obviously now I've jumped into the DCU just invoking the MCU, but but Henry Cavill, I love the Superman suit. I love the kind of the texture, the the tire-like texture, armor, armor all kind of texture that it had. Um, it looked like it was upholstered. Yes, his 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 Superman costume looked like it was upholstered, but it looked cool. It had texture, it had tooth. The the Deadpool costume that Ryan wears on 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 film in the Deadpool movies is very much treated leather. It looks cool. Uh, it, you know, finding our way, the Spider-Man, the Raimi films really were the first big budget. Like, wow. Cause again, what is Batman? He's in black rubber and leather, but Superman with Christopher Reeves is the, is the best version of the primary colors. Yes. Linda Carter as Wonder Woman as well, but many years had passed since those Superman movies were connecting with people. And we had gone down, you know, all manner of different uh, representations. Armor, again, this leather dusters, the Ray-Bans. And and so so the Christopher Reeves, 
1978 Superman costume in 1999 looked dated. It looked not like something that you would expect to see given the, the maturation of the audience at the time. And, and the dome, the, I mean, these kids are already, they're playing video games. They're seeing, you know, how their characters look as these digital heroes, these digital representations. So, so again, the Christopher Reeve bright color, love it. It's a classic. It's, it's, it, it's perfect. It's flawless, but was it playing as well in 1999? It was not. By the time you get to Spider-Man, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man, Spider-Man has another, he has primary colors, but he has a textured costume. He's got that cool cross pattern. It's, it's almost like les, lizard skin-esque. Um, the blue portion, and then they've got like di- different, uh, le- uh, different reflect, re- reflective, refractive, uh, uh, materials on Spider-Man's costume. I mean, the Sam Raimi Spider-Man is a fantastic. All of the movies, they are a fantastic representation of the costume, and it looks great on film. And it is blue, and it is red, and it has black in it, and it's it's just a phenomenal representation. I think it was it was for the modern day era. That is the first punch through. X-Men hadn't gone there. The X-Men films were hiding behind black leather. Everyone had a black leather zipper suit, okay? But in comics, we don't need to do black leather and and, 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 and duster jackets and Ray-Bans because we are the dominion of four-color, you know, pop costumes. You know, yellow and blue next to each other looks good. Red and, and, and yellow looks good. Brown and tan look good. These are cool combinations, cool colors. We are trained. Cartoons and comics, they make this stuff pop. The X-Men animated cartoon that that, that excited an entire era, that ignited the 90s, and and the youth of the 90s worshipped that cartoon, and they loved it. And that had yellow and blue Wolverine, yellow and blue Colossus. It had red and black and white Storm costume. It had purple and, and, and brown uh, uh, Gambit. It had green and yellow and white Rogue. It had blue furry beast. It had red Magneto. It had so many blue-faced powder blue and silver Apocalypse. It had blue, powder blue and brown Cable. So so the comic books, because they want to be buzzy, and I, I, I want to go back to this word buzzy. When I said that Warren Ellis was buzzy at the time, well, the fanboys running Wizard were in the peak of their power in 98 and 99. And guys like Jason Liebig would get on the phone and they would talk to the Wizard guys. Well, do you think this is cool? Do you think this is cool? Because everyone's looking to advance, not just keep their jobs. Some of these guys were aggressive. Liebig was an aggressive guy. He wanted to advance. Uh, he wanted to make the right move. Say, I curated this. And <clears throat> maybe somewhere along the way, the Rob Liefeld that had excited them with rejuvenating sales and bringing back cable even as they knew because Marvel was aware the entire summer that I was drawing this book from my dad's hospital room they were aware Mark Powers Bob Harris all the powers that be were aware all my collaborators were were aware and they're like wow Rob turned cable around the sales went up Uh, uh, cable 75 was a big seller for them we're going to go into business with them but up up wizard wizard you know, maybe you can do better. Maybe, maybe Wizard, maybe, maybe Warren Ellis, maybe Warren Ellis, because he's getting some buzz. Have you seen what he's doing with Stormwatch? It, it, it's becoming the authority. Uh, he's got this book of Planetary coming out. Warren Ellis, Warren Ellis. Well, Warren Ellis became the buzzy guy, and the buzzy solution with the buzzy guy was to go after the buzzy trend, which was black leather. And suddenly, all of that, and you guys go through the Counter X. Um, th- th- there's some crazy. I mean, Cannonball has a collar, at least they gave him a fuzzy fur yellow collar on his black leather, but it's, um, these are some bizarre costume choices, and, and what I'm saying is, 
Not so much to be critical, but this literally has no, virtually no imprint. Okay, did you know that in the mid-2000s they brought back the bionic woman? Yes, I am I'm segueing quickly. Why? It starred uh, the, 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 uh, <clears throat> Our, 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 our beloved, she, she's the queen of sci-fi. She's the queen of, 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 of sci-fi. And she played Starbuck on, uh, you know, on the sci-fi channel, Battlestar Galactica reboot. And, uh, they brought back the freaking bionic woman. Okay. They brought back the, 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 the bionic woman and, and while Battlestar Galactica was on the air, <clears throat> they had Katie Sackhoff uh, appear in this, and she was kind of the maniacal, the 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 um the rogue, the rogue bionic woman. They brought back the freaking bionic woman, and you're like, I don't remember this because it has no imprint. That's why I'm bringing it up. Even with Katie Sackhoff, even with the cool um casting, and of course, you know. You know, she she she's Bo-Katan on on Mandalorian. In 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 addition to being Starbuck on the celebrated Battlestar uh, Ron Moore reboot that that I I hung on every episode. I I could not have loved that more. But if you're like, hey, I don't remember. I what, what are you talking about? <clears throat> the Bionic Woman was rebooted in 2007, and she was the heavy. She was the nemesis. They knew that she had some sci-fi cred, so they put her out there. The, the, the show did not connect. It did not do well with fans, and most Jamie Summers, Lindsay Wagner, OG Bionic Woman fans who made that the number one rated show on ABC rejected the NBC reboot from 2007 with Katie Sackhoff, and it has no imprint. It has no digital full print. It does not affect Bionic Woman. It's kind of a thing of the past. That is counter X. It happened, but there's very little evidence of it, and, and, and virtually you look back and you go, there's no moments. There's no moments from that limited Bionic Woman run on NBC with Katie Sackhoff. Uh, there's, there's no, there's no footprint of that. There's no moments of that. You go, Oh yeah, I remember that. That was, that was seminal. That was cool. That's a definitive moment. Now, now by, by contrast, her turn as Starbuck, which was controversial back in the early 2000s, because come on now Starbuck's a woman. I mean, this is early 2000s, 2003, 2004, 2005. This is early 2000s when people were just kind of having to accept that, Hey, it's not always going to be your, your grandpa's version of this or your dad, or in my case, mine version and she was fantastic at Starbuck but she was also extre- extremely celebrated in that role again she was that Ron Moore everything about that Ron Moore Battlestar Galactica really turned the entire concept on the on its head and it was brilliant and it's super intelligent and it's nuanced and it's extremely well executed and I could not recommend it to you more that has an imprint now when you say Battlestar Galactica you have to you have to weigh both of them the classic the classic Glenn A. Larson version and then the Ron Moore version as they go forward. But Bionic Woman, which Katie Sackhoff was picked to help stand up, has vir- virtually no footprint in the Bionic Woman world. It happened, but it came and it went. Counter X has nothing memorable from it. It has literally no footprint on the X office. What happened in X-Man, what happened in Generation X, what happened in X-Force were largely forgotten, but what you remember is what those books look like. And again, the Wills Portacio stuff is great. He's fantastic, but don't take my word for it. I wanted to do some research on Counter X, so I went to some of the different um, rooms that you can find this stuff in, and, and, and here's some of the stuff that I came up with. This is from Goodreads. <clears throat> 
And uh, in Goodreads, the, uh, this counteract stuff does not exactly get... It, it, it falls in the same line that what I'm telling you now. It really was an event that happened that didn't happen. Warren Ellis became sort of a showrunner for the X-Men universe with this revolution, Counter-X. Counter-X was part of an overall umbrella. This also led to what I said, Chris Claremont coming to the X-Men. It's called Revolution, but Warren's counter of it was Counter-X because it should be different and hip and cool and buzzy. Buzz, 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 buzz. Okay, it's failure led to Marvel doing a massive revamp which included Morrison's new X-Men. Grant Morrison came on. Uh, it said, this is a sort of covert ops version of the X-Force concept. Uh, the only major player in the book uh, is Pete Wisdom, which allowed Ellis to revisit his character. Uh, you know, that is uh, John from Goodreads. Then then, then it says, uh, another guy gave it a, a, a two-star rating and said, it is not really clear what is happening and why in this Counter X reboot. Pete Wisdom becomes John Constantine, John Constantine, DC's John, Marvel's John Constantine, in the Cable Professor X role. It has love, cynicism, cigarettes, and a British accent. Uh, <clears throat> another guy here gave it a one star. Says Warren Ellis brings the book in a brand new direction, right in orbit around his favorite self-insert reflective character, Pete Wisdom. Uh, Expect the unreadable art and terrible fashion and one-dimensional characters. Uh, this guy says, uh, Warren Ellis is one of my favorite writers in comics. This is Adam Stone. He gave it two stores. His Stormwatch and Planetary are some of the best turn-of-the-millennium superhero comic books ever published. But his more recent work on the X-Books are forgettable. This brief run of X-Force is initially intriguing. He resets the tone of the book by introducing a character from his dreadful Excalibur run, Pete Wisdom. I was absolutely intrigued to see what he was going to do with this book. Unfortunately, he didn't do much. It was darker, both color and palette-wise, theme-wise, but it wasn't interesting. I found no reason to like or dislike a single character in this book. They all sounded the same. Uh, I had trouble figuring out what Ellis was trying to accomplish with this story. Uh, also, it, it, it when it comes to Generation X, shifting from X-Force to Generation X, it says... Uh, you know, this Warren Ellis' reiteration of Generation X made it like every other X book. Uh, finally, Alex Sorrell in Goodreads says, the abortive 2000 relaunch of the X books was in some ways a dry run for the subsequent attempt, which gave us the brilliant Grant Morrison uh, new X-Men run. Okay. Uh, Warren Ellis co-plotted, outlined many of these books. His fascination with technology is not quite cutting edge and America's fear of its own young is evident here. Uh, it's uh, agreeable superhero superheroics with a mild edge. So, uh, the, my my involvement in this is again summer. So, so April '99, Matrix comes out. May of 1999, I am starting down my cable run. It establishes me in good measure with. Uh, Marvel again, again, for them to reach out to me after our kind of disjointed uh, relationship on Heroes Reborn is is pleasant and it's great and we had a good time and the books went up in sales and that's what's supposed to happen. Just like recently when I did Snake Eyes and the book was selling uh, 3,000 copies and we had it selling 78,000 copies. That is a giant jump. That is what you're supposed to do. If you're going to take on a project, you want to grab more eyeballs and we did that with Cable. 
So then it turned into, hey, let's do Counter X. But, oh, Warren is more buzzy. Well, Warren comes in, brings his Ian Eddington, Brian Wood, his other collaborators. I think Steve Pugh was one of the artists. I flipped through these last night. Uh, what, when the guy says um, the disjointed art, it's it's the storytelling is off. I, I think Wills was even struggling with what to do in regards to the stories somewhere between the X-Files, which was on TV, and Buzzy, and The Matrix, which was taking the cinema by storm, and Buzzy, they found this kind of disjointed vision of the book, which has really not carried. You may be going, I didn't even, I don't even know these exist. Again, Turn of the Millennium, these came out in the summer of 2000. At the same time, Chris Claremont's contribution, coming back to to the X-Men, he I've covered before, Chris, I love him, he's brilliant, he is the single best, he's my favorite writer in the history of comics, I put him above Alan Moore, I think the work that he did on X-Men, his initial decade run is unmatched in its brilliance, and he did it, he didn't do it with one collaborator, Stan Lee and Jack Jack Kirby had each other for 101 issues, 102 issues, however long they they, they ran, it's, it's, uh, I believe it's 101, if it's 102, forgive me! We talked about the brilliance of that run when we, when we discussed Galactus recently, but Chris had multiple artists. He had Dave Cockrum, he had John Bernie, then had Dave Cockrum again. He had some, you know, fill-in artists. He had Paul Smith, he had John Romita Jr., uh, he had Rick Leonardi, he had Art Adams, he had Barry Windsor Smith, he had Mark Silvestri. For the most part, with the exception of John Romita Jr., this is a murderer's row of, of exceptional talent. I've, I've John Romita Jr. did a capable job, very, very workmanlike, very, very, very journeyman. He he did just what was required. He did not kind of set the art world on its ear as Silvestri and Barry Windsor Smith and Leonardi and Art Adams and John Byrne and Cockrum did. But Claremont achieved what he did over a decade with a litany of different, you know, collaborators. Whereas, you know, something like Fantastic Four just has Jack. Well, <clears throat> he comes back for the 100th issue of X-Men. And I've talked to you before about how if Chris walked out of seeing Alien in 1979, he then decided to put Alien in the X-Men, which is how you get the last John Byrne issue, X-Men 143, where Kitty Pride is literally uh, being chased around an H.R.R. Geiger-esque alien creature. Uh, when Chris walked out of Escape from New York and, and the Warriors, he clearly was like, I'm implementing this immediately and giving you X-Men Days of Future Past. Uh, when Aliens became a bigger deal on the uh, in, in pop culture, he gave you the breed, more of the breed. And and, and they popped out, and they, they, I mean, they impaled through, through people's chests with their tails. I mean, when Chris liked something in pop culture, he gave it to you. Well, you may have, I was literally talking to an esteemed person in the comics industry the other day that had failed to remember that, yes, indeed, and you can Google it, you're going to. In his return, who are the X-Men battling? Who are their nemesis? They are battling, wait for it, wait for it, wait for it, the Neo. Yes, I said the Neo, the N-E-O, the Neo. They are battling the Neo. And I'm like, wait a second, the, the Matrix isn't even a year old. Matrix is, and now the X-Men are battling an enemy called the Neo. Well, of course they're called the Neo because Matrix had Neo. So <clears throat> Chris is, hey man, let's let's make, I'm, I'm going to get some of that Matrix action. It, it wasn't just the action films and cinema and television and 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 the the the, the people populating Warren Ellis's Counter X. Now 
now Chris is bringing you the Neo. And the Neo were a race of mutants that were hiding, who were even more advanced than the mutants that we know. And also, because Domino wasn't, you know, on the cover of Warren's Counter X enough and and, and and wasn't in the spotlight enough, which she was. I'm, I'm being facetious. Domino was a super popular character, had her own multi-three or more action figures by that time. Well, the, the leader of the Neo were Domina. You know, it's like saying, hey, d- d- don't mess with K-Bell uh, because K-Bell, and, and we'll spell that C-A-B-E-L. Yes, I'm being facetious. Yeah, I'm, I'm making that up. But Domina, and I believe her skin was white to boot, was the leader of the Neo. The Neo were homo sapiens that possessed X genes, homo sapiens superior, and believed themselves to be the next step of human mutant evolution. And uh, they were faster, stronger, and more powerful. The Neo separated themselves from the rest of mankind, mutant kind. They separated themselves from the rest of mutant kind and isolated themselves from society for centuries until they emerged. They were mostly wiped out due to some uh, plot uh, aspect with uh, the high evolutionary. The Neo people... It was the age. Did we take all the wrong things from the Matrix? Uh, in reading about Chris's uh, <clears throat> time on, uh, in reading about Chris Claremont's time on the X Men, and when he came back, uh, when he, when he came back, again they called this the revolution. They called this the revolution, and. Uh, <clears throat> They say the most publicized of the changes was the return of the writer, Chris Claremont, to the flagship title for the 100th issue. Um, <laughs> on this uh, th- this uh, Marvel wiki, it says, when Rob Liefeld found out that he could not get the colorists he wanted, uh, uh, he, 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 uh, he had been approached to take over the title, but, but turned down the offer when he found out he would be unable to hire his own colorist. So again, this is the truth. And, and here's the deal. Two of Warren's books were colored by the Irishman, and they were very brown and tan and yellow. And kind of, my, my son Luke, when he came out, he was jaundice. We had to take him back in, in his first week of life, and they put him in a little incubator and like microwaved him back to, um, you know, his natural skin color. He was a little green and a little jaundice. And that's what I, I think the, the yellow, uh, uh, tan Brown aura of the Irishman comics was leaving and, the, and, and, and it was problematic and people didn't want the, their comics to look like that, but you know what it is. So Ellis was the showrunner plotting the general direction for counter X working alongside Stephen Grant, Brian Wood and Ian, Ian Eddington. Ian Eddington. I had failed to, uh, include Stephen Grant earlier. So in wrapping up the revolution and counter X, this, this, uh, says the, re- the revolution event was poorly received by fans and critics alike, leading Claire, leaving Claremont to leave after only nine months. What followed was an incredible, and I've talked about it here on the podcast, an incredible reimagining of the X-Men books under Grant Morrison, who by my, is the second best X-Men writer of all time. It goes Claremont and then Morrison and everybody in between. No one made the impact that Grant did. I've talked about the 2000s, the evolution of the X-Men. They are in dedicated post, um, um, dedicated uh, podcast. Maybe if you Google uh, the, the, the 2000s X-Men or Grant Morrison X-Men or search it on the podcast, you can find those uh, episodes specifically. Grant Morrison followed in 2001 and, and, and did what I think they were hoping to do. <clears throat> Counter X, I think, um, as Kelly McGillis is is Kelly McGillis uh, in in Top Gun is addressing Tom Cruise in his Maverick role as she calls out his recklessness and, and politely says, "I think we've, while this 
maneuver was successful, I think we've determined that this is not something we would recommend. And he kind of, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sly rebuke. I think we look at counter X and it's not something we, re we recommend. I, I don't even think there's a maneuver in it that worked. It has zero footprint. It did not carry forward from top to bottom those books. They got a novelist. They got some sci-fi novelist to take over Cable. And I thought they thought like this is going to do something. It didn't. And Cable got the weirdest costume in the history. That he's, he had a half mask. Like a mask that like, hangs over half of his head. It, it, it was very strange indeed. Counter X uh, was an example of don't don't make all the characters in black leather when we do like bright primary colors the best. I'm looking at a shelf of of like even the Deadpool's that aren't red and black that are purple and black or blue and yellow or gray and red and then I'm seeing like Cable in his in his X-Men costumes his yellow and and blue his his brown and silver his brown and blue you guys, we do colors, colors pop. You're going to be like, no, but Liefeld, it's because those Irishmen that they made everything black and nope. The black and white flagship, the, 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 the one that looked most like the Matrix where everyone was dressed like Neo and Trinity and Ray-Bans and black leather, uh, that the Wills book was, was colored by Wills's guys, Abraham and everybody. Really good coloring, uh, you know, because those guys are good, but, but, but the palette, the, the, everyone's in black and white costumes. So we didn't always learn the right lessons from The Matrix, especially when The Matrix was trying to feed an unsuspecting public and uh, a, a new version of a superhero, but they didn't do it by advertising the spandex. They did it really under the wire. And you're like, but Liefeld Blade wore a duster jacket. Yes, uh, d d you know, we are never going to escape from the 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 the, the select few of the who, who want Blade to be responsible for everything. But he had Ray-Bans. Yeah, look... <clears throat> The Matrix is a perfect movie, and uh, where, where this all ends up is shortly after the rev that this is all kind of failing to connect. Steve Scrochy, Steve Scrooge needs to leave. Go do Matrix Two. They call Rob back. They say, Rob, we're in a pinch. Could you come on board and do four issues in a row to help us while we reboot Wolverine and find a new direction for it? I was on the freeway. I was on the one ten. Uh, driving to LA for a meeting when I got that in my car on my car phone and I said Bob I'd love to I can come up with something quick and those pages Wolverine I was drawing and doing layouts and breakdowns in my sketchbooks while we were going to Lamaze classes while we were going to early infant care classes learning how to have a baby what's going to happen with the baby we, we would go and take those classes at the, at the hospital so the hospital from my dad's illness to the birth of my kids from like 99 to 2003 I'm doing a lot of work in hospitals um, you know, it's the circle of life, deaths and births. But absolutely, if you look at Wolverine 154 and Wolverine 155, which is me now coming to the rescue because Steve Scrooge has to leave. He has to leave and go do the Matrix 2. So he came on board as part of the revolution, which is the event that brought Chris Claremont back where he introduced the Neo and Counter X happened with, you know, with, with, with Warren and they made people look like Neo and Trinity. Well, Steve did Wolverine. They're fantastic comics, but he had to leave. So then I'm coming in and 154, 155, 156, and 157, I write those books. I draw 154, 155. And again, because my relationship with Marvel is solid, I didn't hold anything against them. It had a happy ending. I was like, sure, I'd, I'd love to help you guys out. What, what a blast. Those books came out in uh, September, October, November, December of January and wrapped up my... Uh, the revolution, which started in May, 
of, of 2000. I was there at the end of that, right before the new dawn would come and Grant Morrison and that vision would take over uh, uh, the ex-office. But this is the episode where we did the deep dive into all of the aspects of the Matrix that was being adopted by the comics industry. In this case, specifically the X-Men office. What worked, what didn't. Mostly, guys, let's be honest, what didn't. No hard feelings, jumped in, was happy to contribute to those Wolverine issues, which are now, I hate to break this to you, flying off the shelves. The Wolverine-Deadpool combo that I put together battling this new kind of Church of Mutants called, uh, headed by a guy named The Administrator, uh, that, that, that they actually carried over and played a part in my major X storylines too. Those books are popping. 154, 155 were always, um, because they sold out at the time in 2000, in the, in the fall of 2000, they were never... Uh, you know, really uh, overly available. There were never like a bounty of copies, but now they are popping. You go on eBay, they're $40, they're $80, they're $75. Whatever you can get them, you should get them because of the Wolverine. Wolverine and Deadpool Unite for Deadpool 3. You are going to want those comics. Counter X, X-Men Revolution, The Matrix. Um, very interesting prism examination under a lens of a certain time and everybody was grabbing different aspects of the Matrix, even, again, down to the damn storyboard artist getting tapped to do some amazing Wolverine issues until he was drafted once again. Really fun time in comics. Strange, again, none of that stuck. None of it has any resonance. Um, You are going to struggle to find people who recommend that stuff to you. It is not in demand for a reason. It is really like the Bionic Woman, uh, uh, you know, reboot of 2007 it just doesn't it, it it it's faint and it's fading more every day but hey it was good for a great episode of Rob's observations i hope you guys enjoyed that as much as i did giving it to you i am always so thrilled uh to to share these with you guys thank you for all of the great feedback you guys have been so generous giving me your feedback telling me what you guys are enjoying sharing your enthusiasm uh <clears throat> And, and uh, part of that enthusiasm you guys share with me in writing these amazing reviews that you leave at the end of each and every episode. I am so grateful, so thankful to be a part. And I want to share with you right now, when you guys leave reviews for the book, um, <laughs> for the book, yes, this is like a reading a book for my podcast. When you guys read, uh, when you guys leave the reviews for the podcast, I read them at the end of the episodes. And I am so excited to share this one today. Uh, leaving reviews for this helps us stand out on the platform. It gives us a greater profile and I am so appreciative. Uh, this is from Mike Zapata art or M I'm sorry. I'm, I'm giving him, a, he could be Mark for all I know. I just called him Mike. It says M Zapata art. I actually know somebody named Zapata in our neighborhood, but th- this is not him. M Zapata art. It gives us five stars. He says every time, uh, he says, I kid you not, every time I listen to you, Rob, I get such a feeling of, wow, I was not alone reading, watching the comic book and the movie entertainment of my youth. It almost feels like we were side by side as kids with some of your recollections from back in the day. I'm a 44-year-old comic book artist who has the same imagination and energy of my youth. For a while, I wondered if there was something wrong with me because I just don't see it in other artists. But then this podcast made me realize that I'm not the only kid in an adult body and that gave me more hope for a better and more fun future. Dude, keep doing what you are doing because this podcast gives me some of my fondest memories as a kid. Sometimes and a huge smile appears constantly. Thank you, brother. M. Zapata. Z-A-P-A-T-A. Art. 
that 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 is these are the best. Like I, I love this because I see our connectiveness. Um, again, I'm 11 years older than you, but we have a a, a a a bubble that we existed in, and I'm so glad that we share it. And again, I got I have I have a lot of really good friends who are even younger than you, but we share that. We share that time. Those movies. Um, I may have seen it in the theater. It may have come out on a DVD, a DVD or a VHS, VCR for you. Um, maybe you caught it on cable after I caught it in the theaters. But whatever it was, the comics, the collections, we all shared this. M. Zapata, thank you. I am so glad. The best thing I read here is that it says that, that, that this podcast gives you some of your fondest memories as a kid and gives you us and a huge smile appears constantly. Thank you for this. When you leave these amazing reviews for Rob's Rations. I read them at the end of every show. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for sharing. I am all over uh, social media. On Twitter, you can catch me at Robert Liefeld. I encourage you to follow me on Twitter at Robert Liefeld, R-O-B-E-R-T-L-I-E-F-E-L-D. Follow me on Twitter. We I love to talk and exchange ideas and discuss and mentions, all of it. Um, it's a constant, like a uh, uh, I, I love the idea that it's a town square because it really is. We, we we share ideas, movies, television, comics, sci-fi all the time. I love hanging with you guys. Follow me over on Twitter. I have a blue check, Robert Liefeld. I'm not sure if I'm going to start paying for that. That's weird. But uh, but for right now, that tells you that that's really me. Follow me at Robert Liefeld on Twitter. On Instagram, uh, I seem to find more of you over on Instagram. I'm at Rob Liefeld, just Rob Liefeld, R-O-B-L-I-E-F-E-L-D. Rob Liefeld, I have a blue check on my uh, next to my name there. I follow your mentions, your DMs, your comments, all your commentary. Thank you for following me on Instagram, watching all the different, it's like a daily diary, some things I'm drawing, some some memories of my family, some current stuff with my family, some travel. It's a mixed bag. It's like my visual diary of my life. If I'm opening a toy, I'll share it with you. Follow me on Instagram. I love seeing, hearing, and sharing life with you guys on Instagram. If you haven't caught me on Whatnot, Whatnot is a killer app that is burning up. It is the number one collectible uh, app right now. It is, it is, it is where you can find me on Wednesdays and Saturdays. I do a show from whatnot. We're going to probably change that schedule as we get closer to the holidays. But right now, Wednesdays and Saturdays is where I've been for the last couple of months. Whatnot. I am Rob Liefeld on whatnot. Get the app, download it. If you want, uh, trading cards, playing cards, comic book cards, sports cards. If you want, uh, tennis shoes, sneakers, kicks. If you want sports apparel, comic book apparel, pop culture apparel. And in my department, I, I share with you my signed comics, my signed exclusives, whatnot exclusives. I did a Spider-Man exclusive. We have a Deadpool exclusive. We have a Brigade exclusive celebrating the 30th anniversary of Image Comics. I share signed comics, exclusives, toys, Funkos, original art. Please come find me on whatnot. Follow me on whatnot. A lot of you guys are in my live feed. You, you see in my live stream, I'm, I'm talking to you sometimes for four hours straight. People go, this is like the podcast. It is. It's a little more unhinged. I apologize. Did I really breastfeed a Galactus doll? Uh, on my last live stream, I did. I, if you you had to be there to see it, this is the kind of hijinks that we are experiencing over on my whatnot feed. Come on, come uh, see the stuff that I'm sharing with you. Have a chance to get it. There's live auctions. There's a buy it now store. Visit me over on the whatnot app. Download it now. Find me. Rob Liefeld is where I live and breathe on whatnot. I have a group on Facebook called Rob Liefeld and Extreme Group. Rob Liefeld and Extreme Group. You will be clicked in. The moderators are by my, myself or Terry. We will see you through the process. You will submit. We'll get you through on the other side. That's how you know you found the right group is myself and Terry. That's the only group on Facebook with Rob Liefeld in it that has Rob and Terry Sala, S-A-L-A. We would love for you to join us over there and talk about comics and toys and all and art and all the cool stuff that I've been involved with in the course of my career, not just the stuff that I created, but stuff like G.I. Joe, like Snake Eyes, like The Shield, 
like Fighting American, like like the Avengers, Fantastic Four, all these other different concepts um, that I've that I've uh, you know been fortunate enough to to do over my career. Um, come join us there. It, it's again more of an extension of what we do here. Come, we're, we're getting. So many new members every single day. Rob Liefeld and Extreme Group over on Facebook. Check us out. Visit us there. Thank you so much for listening to me and for sharing your passion for the show. You guys are so kind. You send me emails. You text me you, 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 you uh, through Twitter and Instagram and while I'm on my live stream and you tell me how much you dig this. I am so glad that you are digging it because I am digging, bringing it to you. Part of this, doing this show, is feeding my own spiritual, uh, mental, uh, physical and emotional being. And I am so glad to share it with you. And I want you guys to, to take care of yourself. Go out, have a great dinner, read a great book, have a comic book, sit on the recliner, watch your favorite streaming show. You've got to kick up your feet, let it out, do something creative or involved creatively that speaks to you. Cause I'm rooting for you, your physical self, your spiritual self, your emotional self, your mental self. They, they need that inspiration that you're going to get from doing something you love and imparting, uh, uh, spending time with people you love, doing things you love, eating food you love and let it kind of just get you that full tilt tingle. That's going to take you to that next level. I am rooting for you. Thank you for spending this time with me. Please Please be here the next time. Swung back around. I'm going to be here. We most certainly, absolutely, I am determined we will talk again real soon.